You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Welcome to church. If you would, open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 is a big continuous study that we started two weeks ago called You Are Loved. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Church of Broken Arrow. And what an honor it is to be walking through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation to be exploring the endless love that God has for us in Christ. I want to remind you that our content team has put together a devotional that walks right alongside the sermon you're about to hear. So if you need to be encouraged this week with God's love, if you need to be reminded this week of God's endless love, text the word sermon to 45776. Well, can we just all just praise God just for a little bit that it's finally football season. Praise the Lord. For for many of us, high school football has started. College football has started. It'll start really officially in our state this coming Saturday. The NFL preseason is over. It is time to get it on. Many of us who have kids, we've got INFC going out all throughout Tulsa. Flag football started. It is just a wonderful time of year. And so it's also time for us to make sure that you are updated on your basic football terminology, okay? So here we go. So what is it? What is this pass described as? And I wanted to kind of have a visual representation of you this morning of an actual football, but the last time that I threw something off the platform, it hit someone in the face. So we don't need to do that again, okay? It was a Reese's peanut butter cup, so at least it was delicious, right? But probably not the best thing to be throwing footballs off the platform to you. But what is it when a quarterback, usually at the end of the game, There's no other option left. Time is running out. We got one play. And the quarterback throws it to the end zone. And hopefully they catch it, and most of the time they don't. What do we call that pass? It's a Hail Mary. Yes, very good. Church, praise God. Some of the wisest, most godliest people on the planet right here, right? Do you know the history of the Hail Mary pass? Now, many of us think the origin of the Hail Mary actually started in 1975 when Roman Catholic Dallas Cowboys quarterback Roger Staubach in a playoff game against the Minnesota Vikings threw a pass to Hall of Famer Drew Pearson to win the game. And afterwards, he was in the locker room and they said, how did you do that, Roger? And he said, well, we broke the huddle and we only had one chance. And so I just threw up a Hail Mary and threw a pass. And so coining the phrase Hail Mary, but actually... The term Hail Mary began in the 1930s. With which college, you think? Notre Dame. Notre Dame. There were two All-Americans at Notre Dame. One, Elmer Layden. The second one, Jim Crawley, that in their All-American years would describe their pristine passes as Hail Marys. A Hail Mary is a desperation throw. In fact, since 1990, the NFL has studied the percentage success of all Hail Mary passes, and literally, of the 184 that have been thrown, 9.7% of them have been completed. Now, in God's sense of humor, it's probably been against your favorite teams, right? But there's only about a 10% chance that this pass is ever going to work. And you know what? If we're not careful, that's exactly how we'll see our prayer life sometimes. So few of us are engaged in dynamic activity, conversation, and a dialogue with the Lord because I think we see it often as a Hail Mary. First of all, it's an act of desperation. Instead of the first thing that should be on our hearts, 
does God know this? Of course he does. I need to talk to him. I need to seek his word. No, we do all these other things. Most of the time, unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally. And so then when nothing else has worked, when we have absolutely nothing left, then we cry out to the Lord. I can't help but think we pray this way because we think that God loves us this way. And that is why in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, we're going to study today Paul's second intercessory prayer in Ephesians, and arguably one of the most profound prayers in the entire New Testament. Paul is going to show us what it's like to pray, are you ready for this? In view of the greatness of God's love for us. He's then going to remind us as we pray that we also have an incredible need for God's love in Christ in every area of our life. Paul is going to remind us today that God's love never stops transforming us in Christ. Paul has been building to this point in Ephesians 1 through 2. Paul starts off in Ephesians 1 by reminding us of the endless intentional love of God. A love that is so predisposed to us in Christ that God calls us to himself. And in calling us to himself, he chose us. He chose you before you could ever choose him. He chose you before the foundations of the world. And in choosing us, he brings us to Christ. And in bringing us to Christ, he adopts us. And not as some intern or some nobody, but no, as a, father, as a son and daughter of the king. In adopting us, he redeems us, Paul says. In redeeming us, he forgives us, not just the good parts or the bad parts. All of us, he forgives us. He not only forgives us and saves us, he keeps us. That Paul will say in Ephesians 1 and 2 that God himself seals us with his spirit. He brings us from death to life. He makes us a part of his family, a part of his church. For you and I in Christ are a part of his workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. And so now in Ephesians 3, Paul reflecting upon the great love of God, the amazing grace of God, the goodness of God's plan, now prostrates himself before the Lord. Paul is in humble awe and adoration, and he gives prayerful homage to God. And he boldly prays in light of his confidence in the loving and fatherly care that God has given to him. Not just to him, but to his people. Not just to his people, but to his church. This same prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians 3 is the same prayer that you and I should pray each and every day of our lives. Not just to God, but for each other. And so we're going to study today the, the amazing setting of this prayer in verses 14 through 15. And then Paul in verses 16 through 19 is going to pray for four specific things then I'm gonna challenge us today to pray for ourselves and for one another. Why? Because Paul says you love Christ to love one another. That God loves us with someone else in mind. And it is not for this love that we do this, but rather from this love that you and I live and have our being. Did we shine his light, share his gospel, show his love in our home and to those around us as we continue to follow Christ and make disciples and make disciples in BA and beyond? What does that look like? Let's study verses 14 through 19 together. Let's first set this setting in verses 14 through 15. And your Bible says this, for this reason, 
I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And let's stop right there. Paul gloriously expounds on the access and the unfettered intimacy of God himself that he displays to his children. So much so that God calls him Father. That it is from Paul's awareness of being in God's spiritual family, a family that he says in Ephesians 2 consists of living stones of all races and tribes and nations that rise to heaven based from the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is from these things and the acknowledgments of these truths that Paul cries out to God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. You see, big truths about God lead to big prayers to God. How's your prayer life this morning? Is it active? Is it inactive? Is it transactional, request-based? Or is it dynamic and relational? You see, the vitality of our prayer life lies within our view of God as prayer begins with God, not ourselves. It is a reminder, not of who we are, but rather whose we are in light of Christ, of God's faithfulness to us. And it is the sheer love and grace of God, the access to God provided to Paul, that his posture completely changes. His knees buckle in prayer to God the Father. Now, I can't tell you how absolutely astounding this is in the Bible, specifically right here in the New Testament. You see, it was custom normally for Jews to stand with their hands stretched out and their palms upward. Uh, two months ago, I was in Israel with you know, 35 of our people, and we went to the Wailing Wall, one of the most prominent prayer places in the entire world. And we saw there Orthodox Jews and traditional Jews, and they went to this wall, and that most of them, it was very ritualistic. They were standing here, and they would shake and honor and honor in reverence to the Lord. Very few, if any, of the hundreds of individuals there, both men and women, were kneeling. I didn't see a single one. Notice Paul is not standing. This is not a ritual to him. This is not a tradition. No, this is an awe-filled, love-fused relationship. Paul kneels. Why? Well, kneeling prayers in the Bible are often reserved for great moments of emotion, deep humility, and passion. But that's not Paul's aim at all. That may be a secondary priority, but no, Paul is primarily kneeling because he is overwhelmed with the intentionality and intimacy of the love of God in his life. We have a God who is infinitely loving, who desires an intimate relationship with his people. I'll remind you that it was almost unheard of before Christ for God's people to address God as Father. Overwhelmingly in the Old Testament, God was a person whose access was forbidden. But here is Paul identifying God as Father. And in doing so, he makes an amazing claim for us in verse 14. That as the redeemed of the Lord, despite our feelings of unworthiness, despite our momentary sinfulness, we have unbridled access to Christ. 
that we have an unfettered membership, relationship with God our Father as a member of his household. That God has resolved to remove any obstacle for you loving him as Father. And Paul never got over this. In fact, did you realize that in the 13 letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, he mentions God as Father 42 separate times? So many of us, when we pray to God, He is dear God. He is God. He is Lord. And all of those things are appropriate. But God wants you to call Him Father. You can. You must. He loves you that much. It is this unfettered approachability, this access to God himself through our union with Jesus Christ that has completely overwhelmed Paul. Therefore, you and I then must approach a loving God, not hesitantly as strangers, but with this humble confidence as exclusive members of his household. Now, why would Paul go to such great lengths to reiterate this point? Why is he stressing here our status? Why now? We've had two chapters in Ephesians of theology, an understanding of the Lord, that God has made us and called us and adopted us and redeemed us and forgiven us and sealed us, and now we belong to him. Why now this reminder? Because we'll forget that's why. Because we will get so caught up in our life instead of focusing on the unconditional, unwavering, one-directional love of God, we will tend to neglect the things that we should remember. And the things that we should always forget, we just can't get over sometimes. That you and I will approach God in prayer and instead of thinking of His holiness, we can't stop thinking about our sinfulness. Instead of thinking of his mercy and his grace and his unresolved commitment to us, we keep thinking about our commitment to other things. We get distracted. Our minds become foggy. Our requests and prayers become stagnant. It is the assuredness of God's forgiveness and love. It is the assuredness of God's grace towards us that sets this foundation. And may I remind you that in the Bible, actually the greatest qualification for our prayers is our helplessness. That is why Paul is reminding us of our reserved status before the Lord. In fact, uh, remember James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus in, in James 4.8. He says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Resist the devil, he says in James 4.9. Cling to the word, embrace truth, and he will flee from you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, James 4.10, and he will will lift you up. You see, we humbly kneel in prayer because we know God's ability to answer is greater than our ability to ask. Paul says elsewhere in the Scriptures that we have Christ himself who is interceding before us, that the Spirit refines us as he seals us to bring greater clarity to the very heart of God. Prayer never changes our God's love for you. Prayer changes us from the love of God. May we be encouraged with this truth. That God is always enough. God is always on time. 
that God loves me and therefore will never leave me nor forsake me. Therefore, I will come to him with anything and everything. And so Paul, in the same manner, now prays to the Father in a staircase secession for request for God's divine power to be expressed and evident in our lives. That this love would now fuel every aspect of our lives in verses 16 and 19. And why don't we study the first two requests together in verses 16 and 17. Your Bible says that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith from you, being rooted and grounded in love. Let's stop right there. The first request Paul gives is that God from his abundant riches would strengthen us with power through his spirit. That God from his divine treasury of forgiveness and mercy and from the fruits of Christ in and through us would lavishly dispense these things to his people for gospel impact. How? One, God empowers us not just from these things, but rather, Paul says, as a means in which he alone can provide. In abundance, God provides these things to us. That he strengthens our inner being by his spirit. You see, we must have God's power to do God's will. The Christian life is not hard. The Christian life is impossible without Christ. And anything great for God on the outside lovingly starts by God on the inside. And so Paul prays for his people. Paul prays for us. Paul reminds us that we should be praying that God would strengthen us with his power by his spirit in your inner being. Now, what in the world is he talking to here? The inner being refers to the interior of who you really are. It is where biblically reason and the conscience and the will reside. The inner being encompasses in the epicenter of all that we are as rational beings made in God's image. It is where the Spirit does His strengthening, His renewing work. It is who you are when you look in the mirror. The inner being is who you are when it is you and the Lord. And Paul says, God made you strengthen me, strengthen us in our inner being with your power. You see, previously in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, Paul reminded us that before we surrendered our life to Christ and salvation, that you and I were completely dead in our inner being, in our trespasses. There was no life, darkness. The, the only appropriate response and our rationale was us. What is best for us? It is fueled before Christ by the flesh. It is inflamed by the spirit of the evil one, by the spirit of the world. It consumes anything and everything that is before us. That is what it's like before Christ. But the moment we give our lives to Christ, by faith we're regenerated. 
We're made new. We're given a resurrection power of Christ who remains in us, who's alive in us. And so that's Paul's point here. Paul has in mind here a daily dominating of the influence of the Holy Spirit, an abiding presence of God's power in us through our inner person. See, possessing such strength and enables us to have hope regardless of circumstance. As we continue our daily fellowship of Christ, we will spontaneously trip up, will we not? Uh, we'll have moments of selfishness. Of, of instead of going to God and access, we'll just become stale in our relationship. But as God strengthens our inner person, despite those things spiritually weak, we can be spiritually strong because we're eternally secured. You see, we do what we love most. So the love that motivates us is the power that drives us. And before Christ, people do precisely what they love to do. They cannot change until they hear the gospel, until they receive the gospel, until they repent of this love of self and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive God's love for them. The moment they do so, sin no longer reigns in our lives. Christ does through the Spirit. You want to know what this means for us? This means that God uses not our own strength or abilities, but His. That you and I operate daily in following Christ, not in our own power, but God's divine and refining power through the Spirit. A Christ follower then embraces God's love because God's love is power. And Paul prays that we would be empowered by the strength of his Spirit in verse 16. Secondly, he then says that we will have a continual dwelling of the Spirit in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. We must with all diligence in this time cultivate a mind rooted in God's truth and love. As a Christ follower, we have to daily guard against the ever-present danger of ever allowing a lie to have more influence in our life than God's truth. The moment Christ followers surrender our lives to Christ, Jesus lives in us. As a result, you and I are co-heirs with Christ, united in Christ by his love. And the power of our spiritual life is not by our strength, but solely through trusting his power in the place of ours. And so Paul with this in mind then says that we would pray that Christ may dwell in our hearts. The word dwelling here in verse 17 conveys a permanent settling of a person in a home. It's not always the easiest thing. I mean, you ever had a guest in your home? You ever had your in-laws come, stay in your house for a little bit? There's just kind of this timer that goes off the moment they come through your door, isn't it? In fact, this truth is timeless. So one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, said it well when he says, guest and fish stink after three days. 
if we're not careful, we'll, we'll think of the Lord that way. That Christ has occupied our heart. That Christ dwells permanently in our heart. Have we ever been tempted to tell him to move? To go to another room? To go to QT and get an IC for a little bit? It's not always the most natural thing. That's why we need the power, supernaturally, of God and his spirit in our lives. I remember when Brent and I moved to Alabama and we had just experienced this incredible season of ministry in New Mexico. And we were there five years in southeast New Mexico, outside the Baptist Belt and outside the Bible Belt. And wouldn't you know what? God, in a sense of humor, he, he called us to an incredible church in Birmingham, Alabama, literally right in the middle, one of the star buckles of the Baptist Belt. And so we were on our way moving there, and we couldn't find a house like so many of you who have moved before. And, you know, one rental house just didn't come through. And so finally we found a rental house. And as we were moving there, my Meemaw died. She went to be with the Lord. And so we went back to Oklahoma for, for about a week to, to minister to my family and, and to honor my Meemaw. And, and so before you know it, we get back in Alabama, and we're blowing and going and doing ministry, and things are going great. And you know, we were only there two or three weeks, and all of a sudden, I come out of a staff meeting one time, and Bryn is in our office. And I said, well, what are you doing here? And she said, I am saving your life. I said, really? Well, what do you mean? And she said, well, she said, I have here a warrant for your arrest. And so I said, well, what did your, your parents turn me in for stealing your heart? I said, what's going on here? And unbeknownst to me, I had been summoned to jury duty in Roswell, New Mexico. We hadn't been in Roswell, New Mexico for almost two months. We moved. And so as our mail was deferred and then moved from New Mexico to Alabama, as we spent a week in Oklahoma and then came back to, back to Alabama, and then our neighborhood in Alabama was rezoned, we get this letter six weeks later from basically the district clerk from the county office saying, you have failed to report to, duty to, to jury duty. There's a warrant out for your arrest. And so Brent is in our office providing a proof of residency in Alabama. And so she was faxing that information from our office to the county clerk there in Chavez County in Southeast New Mexico. They had to have two forms, proofs of residency. That's exactly Paul's point in verse 17. That the moment we give our lives to Christ, we have a proof of residency. You are sealed by God's spirit. You have an occupant in your heart. For sin no longer reigns there, but Christ does. And consequently, he takes over our lives by uniting our heart and empowering our actions toward him in Christ's likeness. You see, spiritual change results from a foundational assurance of the permanence of Christ and his love. God in his love is for you. God through his love will never leave us or forsake us. He doesn't abandon us. He abides in us through the Holy Spirit. So Paul says then that we should pray then that Christ would dwell in our hearts so that through faith that you could be grounded in love. 
Paul says, don't miss the church what you're becoming. That you are becoming more like Christ. That religion is not based in on what you do, but rather who you are. That you're to remind yourself that Christ lives and reigns in and through you. His grace has been given to you. His salvation has been given to you. His sustaining love is given abundantly to you. So are you living loved this morning? Are you processing information? Are you communicating in your relationships? Are you making your decisions and spending your resources from a position of being loved? Paul says, may Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. Why? Because we are rooted and grounded in love. You you see these two phrases here in verse 17? Rooted and grounded or established can be another translation of this word. Our terms, are you ready for this? A vibrant growth in the Bible. Paul gives here two different imageries. One, agricultural. It it speaks of a growing plant, a, a vine with a trellis. The second one is architectural. It's a development of a building. We would never be in a building that we question the integrity of its foundation. We would never trust our livelihood or our resources or our families in a house that doesn't have a firm foundation. Paul uses this imagery right here. He's speaking here of a a trust, of an integrity of God himself, that we build our lives on the love of Christ. We are grounded in this love. You ever been grounded before? Take it from someone who has a PhD in being grounded. It's a pretty humble thing. In fact, I remember about this time when I was in sixth grade, it was hot. One of the hottest summers in Oklahoma. And before school started, our student group were gonna go to Six Flags in Dallas, Texas. And they had two new roller coasters that for the entire summer, I could not wait to ride. And so sure enough, the weekend came. We were going to go on a Monday morning, be there all day, come back Monday night. School was going to start on like a Wednesday. And so after church on Sunday, I went home with one of my best friends. And man, we were playing basketball and we were playing football and it was hot in Oklahoma that day. And we were sitting there laying on the ground, drinking lemonade or a Gatorade or something, And my buddy said, you know what? We're going to be there all day in Six Flags. You know what we need? We need to cut our hair. So if it gets too hot, we can just run to the restroom or we can run to a water station. And man, we can just douse our heads and we can keep going. We need to cut our hair. I said, I don't think that's a very good idea. I I better not do that. No. He said, "I, I do it all the time. And his older brother was an FFA. And so he went to his shed and got some pig shears. And he says, I see this happen all the time. It's easy. I said, no, I don't, I probably better call my parents first. You know, they're not really going to like this. And he said, no, it's, it's easy. In fact, I'll tell you what, why don't you cut my hair first? And if you don't like it, then I won't cut your hair. I said, well, that sounds reasonable. And so sure enough, I, I grabbed these pig shears. I'd never had them before. I'd seen it done a million times on my own head, but I'd never done it to anybody else. And so instead of having it in the proper way, I had it backwards. And so I began to cut his hair and it honestly looked great. I mean, he, uh, my best friend, had a face for radio. I'll just put it that way. He never looked better. And so from that, uh, I then gave him the shears. 
and he went right down the middle. And you want to talk about feeling the dwelling of the Lord. Even in this hot summer day, I knew I was in big, big trouble. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And so he had already gone right down the middle. It was too late. He had to do the whole thing. And he got done, and I said, what does it look like? He said, I think it looks, and he just took off running. (laughs) And so I went inside his house, and his mom looked at me and said, Maddie, you are done for. She said, you better call your parents right now, son, because that's the only hope you have. And so I called my mom and dad, and they said, we'll see you at church. Well, I I knew exactly what that meant. And so I got to church early that Sunday night. And I sat down low in the pew that night. And to my amazement, as we began to sing the first song, my parents hadn't arrived yet. Maybe they were delayed. Maybe there was some sense of God's grace. But as we began to make that turn in that hymn, I felt the Shekinah glory of the Lord. I could feel the stare of my mom, and I looked back, and there she was in all her glory. And so after church, my parents didn't say a word. We went out to dinner with several of our friends, and I thought maybe by some God's grace, they just realized this was a dumb, flippant decision. Maybe, maybe I'll get away with this. (laughs) No, you won't. No. So we get home, and the moment we get home, they sent me down and said, you're grounded. I said, why? Why? I admitted this was a mistake. I should have never listened to my friend. I didn't know what I was doing. You're grounded. Why? I said, I'm going to go to Six Flags tomorrow. No, you're not. You're grounded. Why would you take Six Flags away from me? And they said, have you seen yourself? I said, well, no. And so I looked in the mirror, and sure enough, it was like my friend had cut my hair with a weed eater. It was bad. It was really bad. But I told him, this will grow back. We'll get over this. They said, Manny, this has nothing to do with a haircut. You see, son, you're going to leave this place someday. You're going to leave this house. You're going to have all of these different voices, son. You're going to listen to. Which voice will you choose to follow? You chose the wrong voice. And because we love you, you're grounded. You're not going on this trip. You're instead going to go get your hair cut, and you're going to start school on Wednesday. Oh, the impact of life that one moment can have. You are grounded in his love. All of these voices that you're listening to, never give more weight to them over his. Be grounded in his love. A love that is selfless, self-denying, unconditional, sacrificial, abundantly available to us through Jesus Christ. We are grounded in a love that is not a feeling. We are grounded in a love that is not a thought. We are grounded in a love that is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to build our lives on this love. Now, what is the extent of God's love for us in Christ? Verses 18 and 19. Let's quickly go through these. 
that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul wants all of us, thirdly now, third request, to have the strength to comprehend, to apprehend is how you translate this word, to grasp, to catch, to seize, to lay hold of God's love. You see, it's the temptation of all of us, even the most devoted Christ follower, to measure the dimensions of God's love on a previous experience with him or a relational experience with others. But Paul here mind-bogglingly details the love of Christ in geometric terms in verse 18. He says here, you ready for this? That God's love is as long as eternity past. So wide as it is to include all nations, so high that it surpasses even the apex of the heavens, so deep and intimate, it's as everlasting that it annuls any claims of hell that would have on our soul. No, no one in Christ is beyond the reach of God's love, for Christ's love for us is as everlasting and sure as his sovereignty to us. Paul in verse 19 in closing states that Christ's love surpasses all knowledge. It fuels our faith. He says here that, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the fourth request. That God's love in Christ is not just a subject then to be explored, but a person to be loved and experienced and followed. Think about this. God not only wants us to think about him, but talk and communicate to him. You see, Paul knows all too well that we will do what we love, that we will pursue what we desire most. And so he prays that God would give us a full majority, an overflowing capacity to perpetually have our lives full of him. Being filled to capacity is the point that Paul is making in verse 19. You see, love for the ways of the world cannot coexist in a heart that is full of the love of Jesus Christ. It was one of the greatest theologians that we've seen in the last 200 years that summarizes this point well. H.A. Ironside, when he says the secret to holiness is heart occupation with Christ. As we gaze upon him, we become like him. Are you full of God's love this morning? Are you requesting that God would keep you filled, overflowing with this love? Are you focusing on God? And from the overflow comes all the rest of life. You see, we can do more with nothing plus God than we can with anything minus God. May we love God. May we be full of his love. May we reach others with this compelling and fulfilling, endless love of Jesus Christ. And may we trust him to shine his light and his love to those around us. For now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than what we can ask or think according to the power within us through the Lord Jesus Christ. To him, Paul says, may be the praise of God forever as we love God 
and love one another, may it be from a position that you are loved. Therefore, may we love Christ to love one another. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.